I'm sorry that I missed your party. I wish I had a better excuse, but I can't even lie, you got me. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys, boys. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. Let's get ready to... Oh, no. That was for that. <laughs> Keep it oh, in. Man. Keep it in. Let's get ready to rumble! Welcome to Aya versus the big boys. Tonight's fight, Apocalypse Now! <laughs> Hello and welcome. My name is Kevin Cookman, resident big boy and ringleader for the matchup of the century. You are listening to Merry-Go-Round Magazine's first ever Patreon-exclusive podcast miniseries. As you very much know, we are stuck in a quarantine amidst the global pandemic, all working from home. The side effect of that, some of us have a lot more free time to catch up on media of all shapes and sizes. Uh, we all have movies we know we should have seen by now, but just haven't. Call it the canon, call it the IMDb Top 250, or call M, the big boys, the pinnacles of cinema, maybe the most explicitly patriarchal artistic medium of all time without any further ado. In today's episode and every episode, I am joined by the titular prize fighter herself, the mayor of the asshole of the world, Aya Layman. I don't have a quote for this one, but I would like the audience and you, Kevin, to picture that moment when Larry Fishburne is like making a like face and flipping off um, his fellow soldier. It's a great face. It's very, it's the most animated moment in the whole movie. It really, he gives that movie so <laughs> much energy without him. Did you know he was like 14 when they got, he got cast? Yeah, he lied about being 17. He's That's crazy. He's years old. He looks, he, he's great. He's great. We're diving he matches, in. Yeah, he matches everything that that character needs to be Absolutely. perfectly. Aya, Kevin. before we dive in to our movie, how you doing, bud? Chief, you know, it's the end of a very stressful week, so I'm great. How are you? Oh, you know, I can only sense it's the beginning of a very stressful second half of the year. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's for a fact. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to stay positive and, and warm and rosy cheeked that's that's the best i can do that's usually that's all you need to do baby uh aya you have a a cocktail on hand i am i am drinking it's my first time i probably had a white claw while we were recording one time here there maybe i don't know uh but this is my first time announcing on air i've got a nice little cocktail ready to go and i'm i feel like one needs a cocktail when discussing apocalypse now Yeah, I'm not drinking any of that devil's juice. I'm drinking some nice electrolyte-filled water. God's piss, baby. (laughs) God's piss will be coating my throat this hour. (laughs) Baby. Baby. You are listening to Ivers the Big Boys. We are here to talk about Francis Ford Coppola's 1979, originally supposed to be 1977, and then 78, and then eventually... Finally landed in 79. Apocalypse Now, one of the most uh, controversial production histories in Hollywood history and now considered uh, just one of the best war films of all time. It Uh, is. Aya? Well, well, there we go. Aya, you saw this film for the very 
first time, as is the conceit of the show. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin, for reminding the audience what the podcast is about. <laughs> I guess we can dive right into it. What did you think of Apocalypse Now? Kevin, this is really weird, and um, I feel like it's extremely off-brand for who I am as a person. I love war movies. Well, okay, we're going to have to explore this one. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love war movies so much. Um, I love war books, especially my favorite war. Okay, that's a psycho thing to say, but I've talked to many white wow. people who have said this before to me. Because when white people love Vietnam and they kind of, but they mostly like love, oh my God, white people are so horny. They're addicted to World War II. <laughs> Am I wrong? Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> Uh, no, World War II is a is a drug for the whites. It's because a they're true like heroin dose. White people were being um, oppressed, and white people came to save them. Um, no, I like I love World War One because um, have you ever read you ever read All Quiet on the Western Front, Kevin? I've watched the film. You've seen the film. All Quiet on the Western Front is a magnificent book that I read as a teen. I think I was, what, 17 years old? And I was like, this is amazing. I love narratives about war because it always comes to the same conclusion that war is fucking useless. Would you agree? Uh, with the sentiment, largely, yes. 100%. I feel like the war movies I'm drawn to, I mean, I'm, I just kind of like war movies. I don't really know how to explain why I love war movies so much. Like Dunkirk fucks, which is kind of not a war movie. It's a horror movie. Ugh, men are always like, it's not really a war movie. It's more a horror movie. Um I love, I really like Hacksaw Ridge. Okay, I know. Fuck Mel Gibson, but that would be really Holy good. shit. Hacksaw, I mean, like, I know I'm going to become the parody because with Apocalypse Now, I will be fighting for the fact that this legitimately feels like a horror film down to, like, all the techniques they go into, Coppola goes into assembling this movie. Hacksaw Ridge is a fucking, like, zombie splatter feature. Yeah. That shit is demented. That movie slams. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. Um, I also just love Andrew Garfield, even though his accent was terrible in that movie. Um, Awful. Horrendous. Really bad. And he was nominated for Best Support, Best Actor for that. For that? Yeah. He wasn't even... Okay, he took I up a seen, slot. I haven't even seen Silence, but I assume he was better in Silence, and I can guarantee he was better in The Social Network. Anyways. I love war movies. I love uh, war books. Ugh, recommendations galore. Read Regeneration if you are wondering why I love war books I, and why I love World War One. Regeneration fucks. Atonement? A war movie. True. Very true. Very true. Anyways, so I knew I was going to enjoy this because I do like war movies a lot, weirdly. Again, I don't know why. Okay, I do know why. I just said I know why. War movies prove that war is completely useless. But also, I just kind of like... I like friendship a lot. <laughs> and these <laughs> movies, war movies are always about male friendship, which I think is very important. Um, well, I think you bring up a really interesting point in that war movies are one of the very few avenues in which men are allowed to be emotional. Very true. Very true. Which is what really draws me to them. Like, especially this, uh, that was my, probably my favorite part of this one was their relationship with each other throughout the film and like how that just decayed. Yeah, like it, it takes the absolute horrors of uh, empirical genocide to make any of these men say what they really mean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's the great a tragedy of, of most of these films. You bring up uh, these war movie bona fides, and I'm curious, because this, this is brought up with Apocalypse Now 
a whole shitload. Mm -hmm. And it can often be a bit of a contentious claim that Apocalypse Now is an anti-war movie. Do you think there's such thing as an anti-war movie? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think... I think in terms... it's, It's all like... I'm thinking about a lot of genres right now, and I'm thinking about a lot of films that have a purpose and, like, a cause. For for some reason, what came to mind is, like, um, this film I just recently watched as part of my Keanu month, um, To the Bone, which was a anorexia movie. It was a movie about eating disorders. Okay. All right. I'm going to make... I'm going to draw a comparison here. <laughs> Only in that a lot of people who suffer from eating disorders were, like, this movie will encourage more people to have eating disorders. Even though I, as a person who I've not really struggled with an eating disorder was like, Oh, this was very informative and helped me learn a lot about eating disorders and reminded me why, like, that's not something I struggle with, but it gave me more insight into a person who does. I think about war movies where I'm like, okay, your sentiment can be anti-war war is bad yet. You're still showing the masses like how hype war is. They're super rousing. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's like you can't really control how people interpret your film no matter how much you're like, this is about how war is bad. This is about how war is bad without actually ever really saying it. You have to like – you have to watch this movie and be like, oh, yes, I am intelligent enough to recognize that war is bad. But I can imagine people watching any war movie and being like, this is fucking dope. And it's all about honor and it's, and it's, it's so, it's action filled and I get to hang out with my bros all day and like fuck up, you know, these poor Vietnamese villages of like nice children. And so I think that, I think you can be anti-war in sentiment, but again, you, you are leaving a lot up to the interpreter. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with just the form of these movies too, where, I mean, what, Anti-war is a huge phrase, but I think uh, something that comes to mind is is how often at odds the spectacle of war movies are with that sentiment. Like, uh, if we just go to like the biggest example, like Saving Private Ryan. Like, you. I've never everyone... seen that. <laughs> what? Add it, we'll add it to the fucking That's episode list. That's on the list. list now. It's on the list now. But that movie has like the all-time popular. Uh, nearly infamous D-Day sequence, okay. which is like the big draw for the film at the time. And it is ultra violent. It is super harrowing. There's guts and limbs spewing off everywhere. Not it's horrific. Guts and limbs. Here's the thing. It's supposed, it's Steven Spielberg. And he wants you to see how disgusting and ugly this is. But it's also Steven Spielberg. So it's shot beautifully. It feels insane the the sounds and the noises it feels like a theme park ride like it, it is an experience to behold and what ends up being uh, the legacy of the d-day sequence in saving private ryan is that it's like it has 12 million views on youtube oh you know god. like it's the most viewed clip like oh my god this was like the realities of war my grandfather told me all about this oh my god this is what they sacrificed and it, it just goes back to like the honor thing again of like oh yeah honor baby uh, and it's it's difficult to see if really anyone can make an anti-war movie because an anti-war movie I think would kind of have to involve making a legitimately ugly film like yeah. something that is unpleasant to look at unpleasant to be in uh, and unpleasant to just feel and do you 
for me, Apocalypse Now fits that bill. I finished this film uh, when we watched it together, and I was like, wow, I don't ever want to watch that ever fucking again. I feel so bad. Uh, what was once like, this Apocalypse Now comes out not immediately after the Vietnam War, but soon enough that it's enough of a radical political uh, statement that wow. it was created yeah. at all. Uh, and there's something about it with how media was spread in 79 that it does feel like a very uh, unflinching view on what's happening oceans over, uh, which is, you know, it's the shock and awe. But nowadays, like, I feel like there's the... It Apocalypse Now feels like uh, like doom scrolling on Twitter. Like it's just <laughs> everything is fading into one another. There's yeah. one person you meet after the next, and it's just they're all worse than the other person you just met and left behind or saw keeping their guts in with a frying pan. Uh. Uh, it makes me never want to be not only in a war zone scenario, but it makes me not want to talk to other people. At all. <laughs> ever again ever again and i think that is where the film succeeds in being anti-war to me do you where do you how do you feel about apocalypse now specifically being or not being an anti-war movie i mean again as we've discussed the point of this podcast is to discuss how people primarily women, watch movies wrong and like I can imagine watching the Robert Duvall sequences, which are insane. <laughs> he's he's on one. He's so good in this movie. I get why he was like the only person nominated. Um, I can imagine watching those scenes and being like, "This looks great." If you're not really listening, you know, like I'm watching this from the perspective of someone who's like, "Fuck war," especially like the Vietnam War was like terrible. I'm watching this from the perspective of someone who already knows that the point of this movie is to be like, "Look at what." soldiers are do like they're fucking surfing while they're bombing this village you know but if you're watching this movie as someone who's like maybe not made their mind up or like doesn't really understand like you know the the implications of what our country did to that country you know i'm like that looks sick <laughs> you know like if you're not really listening you're watching this and you're being like oh they're like having fun while they're also protecting our country they're you know bonding as men going surfing and getting to like live their dreams while they're like you know taking care of like of, of america's problems you know manifest destiny or whatever and even by the end there you could you could even be like well they they split off from the group and that's the bad thing they should have stayed with their their brethren and they're not really fighting the war by the end even though everything is connected to the war if you're watching this, you could be you could dissociate those two things and say, oh, they're well, you know, if they hadn't really left, and that's the problem with Kurtz is he left, and that's why he's going crazy. If he just stayed in the war, maybe he'd be fine. I don't know. I think for me, obviously, as a person who's who knows this is all very fucked up. Um, yes, this is a really great anti-war film because you're just watching the you're right, it's disgusting. I mean, that's what I like so much about all World War One, I, I can't believe I'm talking about World War One so much. I love World War One. Um, it's no, a nasty fucking war. It, it is exactly. A, That's if we're I, talking favorite wars, World War One is is up there for me. For like the inception of it to how it started is the craziest thing I've ever heard in any history book of all time. Right, Duke for, Duke. Like what is it? Archduke Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand himself. Um, no, I, but like the thing about that is that when I think about World War One. 
uh, the first thing that comes to mind, and this is so disturbing, is like the smell of rotting bodies. Because that is so clearly depicted in all media you consume about World War I, is that they're in the trenches and there were just decaying bodies everywhere men are pissing in the trench like it's just it's disgusting it's like it's it's so gross because they still had to be physically present during the whole war and you just and it's so well recorded how disgusting this was and the shell shock that came out of it, the ptsd that came out of it is so that's what you remember about it and that's why i find it fascinating is because you're like oh like all these people died for what for what and that's the best part about All Quiet on the Western Front is that that line where the guy's like, you know, I just fucking wish that all the leaders of these countries would just get in a, go to the circus and like fight this shit out themselves <laughs> because like, why am I here? And so I think that this movie does a really good job of kind of like taking that idea of just like the decay and the the disgusting lying on this boat and just being, ugh, like this, you can imagine the smell and like they're they're they're, they're so mad at each other by the end because you're just like everything is terrible why are they here why is anyone here i think it's it's for me it's really tricky because that part that you're describing helps make the movie feel so uh just provocative and just uh like i i feel like i can dip a chip in this movie you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but at the same time, like it, it is what makes me so apprehensive about most every Vietnam War uh, movie in that this is this sense of a, a rotting space is always at the expense of the objectification of the Vietnam we pillaged. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something about it that feels. I mean, I mean, this maybe this is just me not finding enough movies, but I, I, I find it. And I think this is why perhaps Apocalypse Now and the anti-war movies aren't completely anti-war to me, maybe like a 95%, because at the end of the day, they are still only portraying Vietnam as the worst. <laughs> like, this place fucking blows. It sucks. And of course, like, the subtext is that, why is it the worst place in the world? Oh, because we made it the worst place in the world. Yeah. We ruined this this area. But the narrative never seems to go into interrogating it too much for me to the to to an extent where vietnam always feels like and this was a a critique that came up with uh the five bloods which is the spike lee Mm -hmm. film that came out this year where vietnam is always a a a, a space and a culture meant for the personal development of american characters yeah uh and that's it here especially with being like a a an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, which is one of the most intensive character pieces of all time. It's, uh, you know, it's it's using Vietnam for that explicit purpose. I, you're a huge fan of oh, Heart of Darkness. Okay, that sounds bad. That you're sounds a huge. Really, it's a very you're a huge racist, fan of some fucked up shit, brother. Book. <laughs> a very racist book. Like Chino Achebe <laughs> literally wrote Things Fall Apart because he was like, wait a second now. But um, no, I I just, we had like a very, it was an amazing book to read in high school with my class. It was a really, it was just very illuminating, you know, and I'm really, I'm just like addicted to the idea of this very, as you said, a very intense character study, the racism and the whole, you know, imperialism situation. I don't, I'm a huge fan of, but like (laughs) overall, I just think it's very, 
I, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's very interesting. It, well, it I want to ask. Lends me to. It gives me an opportunity to learn so much about men. <laughs> Can you speak on that? <laughs> Can you speak? On that? <laughs> I'm kind of struggling. I read Heart of Darkness in high school, so I'm kind of struggling to keep it straight. You know, like I don't super remember everything about it, and like the plot's a little bit fuzzy, apart from what I obviously just saw. But I just feel like it's an it's an interesting look into the way men relate to each other and how it's told in like, you know, in the past. Like it's the author, like the, the main character is telling it in the past, in the future, sorry. And it's, it's his memory, which I think is interesting um, because it's like how, you know, these experiences color your memory, how and how these people because like Kurtz is this mythical figure, which I think is really cool. They, I think they do an amazing job of him in this movie because he doesn't fucking show up until what the last like what thirty minutes of a Just two about. hour twenty minute long film. Uh, yeah, to, to to specify, we watched a theatrical cut, not yeah. the Redux or the final cut. How this is one of those, those movies that has a bunch of cuts. Uh, it goes up to three hours. Jesus Christ! I mean, I get it. I'm. I, you said this once, and I have never agreed more. Where I'm like, a film needs to be either 90 minutes or like three hours and 30 minutes. And that's it. <laughs> I like you said that years ago to me, and I've literally held onto it for so long because I'm like, it's absolutely true. Anything in between minutes, is poison. Like 90 to maybe like 110, maybe 110 minutes, fine. Or I can't come up with the number, 330 minutes, whatever. That's the good shit. Three that's hours, the great shit. That's what I want. Because otherwise, you're wasting my fucking time. But this movie was, like, this movie was long, but, like, I feel like it should have been either longer or shorter. Like, I want to sit down and watch this epic. Um, but, no, I, 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 I think it's so fascinating to learn about the way men obsess over other men and the way men canonize other men in their lives before they even meet them. Or just, like, when they, like, the way that he, in the book he interacts with Kurtz is so fascinating because it's just it's this guy who he doesn't really know anything about. He just knows like the way he's been added to mythology, basically. And in this movie, it's even it's even better. Like how you improved on friggin' Joseph Campbell. Um, it's so good how he uh, is just obsessed with Kurtz by the end of the film, and he's you know reading and he into a point where he almost buys into it. And someone else has to come get him because he's like, I'm in. It's how he reads his files, how he just comes up with this whole perception of him. And then and and to add on to that, how the the rest of the military treats Kurtz and how they like, you know, kind of how everyone is involved. It's not just him and Kurtz. It's how everyone is involved. How in the very beginning, we're introduced to this character by Harrison Ford Hot and like once even once he gets to the island, you still don't meet Kurtz. You meet um, my friggin' guy who's not my guy because I learned he's a bad man. <laughs> Dennis Hopper, baby. Dennis Hopper. You still are just learning so much about him from a completely different perspective. And you almost don't even get an opportunity to like form your own opinion of this person. Well, that's one of the most interesting parts of Kurtz is that he did not go mad. Kurtz in uh, uh, Apocalypse Now, I should specify. Mm. He did not go mad in the jungle. Like before, he basically went rogue. He was highly lauded by the military. He was one of their best he was soldiers. A big guy. He was like 
the militia that he creates, the uh, the evils that he enacts in his corner of Vietnam, those are all lessons imparted upon him uh, by the U.S. military. Those are American values. Yeah. That's what he's just using American values there. It's like. It's oddly enough when I like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now is very much like a Hitler like figure uh, who like Hitler used basically uh, the Native American reservations in the United States uh, throughout the 1800s. The the analog of that sort of major evil to Kurtz and applying that to the US military again directly is a type of like very righteous bloody anger that makes the film feel not just uh it, it makes the film not feel just like embittered but legitimately kind of like dangerous and almost explosive like it, it, it has image like the imagery is is genocidal in itself like when you get to kurtz's island oh my god it is the heads horrific the it, heads it, 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 it feels like fucking cannibal holocaust and the wicker <laughs> man when you get to that final third it's insane uh I guess since we're here talking about that final third, uh, th- that's I know that a lot of people that love Apocalypse Now, like a lot of like, oh, I'm watching all the 100 movies on the AFI movie list. They enjoy the first two thirds of Apocalypse Now for basically being uh, a road trip movie through Vietnam. True. And then you get to that final third and it turns into a completely different experiential head fuck. What, what are your sentiments on that split? Um... I really like. There's it. a split at all. I don't, I, don't, I really liked it. I don't know. It makes it made sense. It made narrative sense to me. I don't think it was as the biggest change is when they meet, you know, Robert Duvall, and then they go onto their boat and they're doing their own thing, and you're just like, wait, what? And then from then on, it makes so much sense to me. I don't know. I loved it. I loved it. But here's the thing, <laughs> and I'm excited to talk about it. My introduction to Apocalypse Now was via the film, the 2017 film, director Jordan Vote Roberts, Yes, He Sucks, oh Kong Skull Island. <laughs> oh, my God. We're talking about how Apocalypse Now is like Kong Skull Island this, right, this early in the app. This okay. early in the plot. Okay. Because that's just how I learned anything about Apocalypse Now. I know that's crazy. Everyone's like a psycho. Because I've always known about Apocalypse Now, and I've had some, maybe seen some clips. I don't even remember if I've seen clips. I assume at Chapman University I would have seen a clip. Um, But no, like, for some reason, that movie really brought, Kongsland brought me to Apocalypse Now, which was a, a, it was a directly influenced, um, literally Tom Hiddleston's name in that movie is Conrad. Like, are you kidding me? It's really... I was prepared for that and I was really hyped for it. I I thought it was exciting because I was like, oh, hell yeah. We're going to like, we're going to the part of the story that is weird. It's weird as hell. And I loved it. You're getting to the part where you meet King Kong. That's the entire last third of this movie. Instead of a giant ape, it's a obese, sweating, not line remembering Marlon Brando. Talk about Marlon Brando in this movie, please. Marlon Brando, apparently, everything he's saying is kind of improv Like, he's just spitting off the dome. Just I love that. Not, like, apparently, I think there's 20 minutes of monologuing that he went off on. And a bunch of it was meandering and made no sense. 
but apparently it's brilliant. And so what we hear is just two and a half minutes of an excerpt <laughs> of him just going the fuck off in the booth, just going going ham, which is okay. Pop off, Mister Brando. I don't. I don't have a problem with it. It's Pop Marlon off, Brando. What am I going to say? No. Yeah. I guess he because do you know any of the production history of Apocalypse Now? Because it's kind of notorious. Somewhat for familiar, and I'm I've always been really weirdly into watching the film Hearts of Darkness, but I just never have obviously because I haven't seen the movie. I was planning on doing that this week, um, but yeah, I've always been kind of like into the fact that it was a disaster. Like I love that. Uh, I have a book here with me. Uh, Whoa! Called- <laughs> he brought a prop. <laughs> Uh, it's called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood. It's Peter Biskin's book. A disclaimer, I would love to read a page for you uh, that kind of gives you some insight into what kind of movie production this was. Uh, the disclaimer is that a lot of this book is bullshit. Okay. Uh, unsubstantiated claims, <gasps> a lot of gossip. It's like, it's even, spicy. Kevin, even better. <laughs> I want, I want zero substantiated claims, baby. I want full gossip. <laughs> uh, what I'm about to read is basically Coppola's approach to the film, and I have to say, there's not any. There, there are no citations on this entire. Page. Hell yeah, let's go. But given my experience in the professional film world, mm-hmm. I can pretty confidently say with like my entire heart and soul. This sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me read for you uh, a little bit about Francis Ford Coppola and his approach to the production. On March 1st, 1976, Coppola, accompanied by his family, finally left for the Philippines for what was expected to be a 14-week shoot. Oh, my God. Dean Tavalaris had picked out locations all over the jungle island of Luzon, and the idea was that they would simply hop from location to location. This required the production to rely on air transportation, assuming that the Philippines had a modern, efficient airline system like that of the United States. Are you kidding? Such was not the case, and the mountains were dangerous for helicopters. Moreover, the rivers were so treacherous that the boatmen who ferried around the location scouts wore t-shirts with numbers on the back to make it easier to identify them if they drowned. (gasps) <gasps> during <laughs> oh god uh during the scout one crew member told coppola don't come here it's dangerous go to australia go to thailand go to stockton you're talking about building a 20 million dollar set this is november on may 15th the first typhoon's gonna hit and it's gonna rain until october 15th the water rises 50 feet the sets are going to be washed out to sea coppola said what are you, a fucking weatherman? He simply didn't <gasps> want to hear it. It was a hellish shoot. Uh, the difficulties compounded by Coppola's arrogance. The logistics were impossible. And he went through assistant directors like Kleenex. The first were, <laughs> the first were Italians hired for their ability to communicate with DP Vittorio Storaro's crew. Mm-hmm. But they fell behind immediately. Coppola fired them and sent for David Lean's first AD on the bridge on the River Kwai. Okay. In the meantime, he improvised. Jonathan Reynolds, a writer pal who was on set possibly to make a making of book, had rarely, if ever, been on a set before. Francis made him first AD <gasps> of this enormous production. When David Lean's guy finally arrived, it turned out he was too old to do the job. <gasps> River Kwai was made in 1957. Holy it's fucking 1977. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
as actor Fred Forrest, who played Chef, put it. Oh, we love in Chef. The, in the movie, when Martin Sheen walks up to that guy in the trench and says, who's the commanding officer here? And the guy says, ain't you? That was the essence of Apocalypse Now. Oh. We didn't know who was in charge, man. That is just a, a taste of the set of Apocalypse Now. It was a nightmare. Francis Ford Coppola loses 100 pounds oh. uh, through just complete stress and mania. He invests, like, uh, he gets like a $3 million loan to keep making the movie. He mortgages his, his winery. He's just totally in his head because this is following up two godfathers. Yeah. Huge financial hits. Uh, and he's just the cockiest fucking son of a bitch in the world. And so this brings up a huge topic in big boy cinema that I would love to ask you about. The essence of getting a movie done no matter what. The ego taking precedence over anyone's well-being, which is a very, very celebrated uh, habit in most celebrated auteurs and directors uh, in many ways, that is like when you look in the uh, annals of like classic 60s and 70s new Hollywood films, that is how these directors made magic. They mistreated Ugh. everyone. <laughs> Every person they could. They were like, fuck you, you're disposable. And um, so I'm, how do you feel about that behavior being lionized for decades on end? Really and do you think it's ultimately worth it given the end results of what are often some of our favorite movies ever made? Uh, that's, a, that's a question that is far too big for me, sir. Let me, okay, let me, let me dial it down. No, no. Let, 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 me, let me direct it to Apocalypse Now. Okay. Was it worth it? <laughs> was, a, was it worth it? Was Apocalypse Now, the movie you watched, was three years of production hell worth it? Did anyone die? <laughs> uh, Martin Sheen got a heart attack. Mm -hmm. uh, had to leave set for a bit. Uh, apparent, I think someone died. Oh my but god. Not sure if it was an on set thing or if it was just the a crew stress. member that was forced to be in, in, in the Philippines. Uh, everyone came away from this pretty upset. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I my like blanket... Because you think about that question particularly now in terms of, like, you know, abuse. And, like, I feel like a lot of things people are always kind of like, but it ended up fine, right? And I'm like, I would rather all these people be fine rather than, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. It just sounds, like, hard. <laughs> it just sounds, like, stressful. <laughs> this one I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. It just sounds like it sucked, you know? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> There's something about that that page that I just read that just sounds like an extreme amount of mismanagement yeah. and not having anyone check Coppola's ego. No one. Just like he is basically making calls that the executive producer would call. Yeah. Which I I, I don't know have the credit list in front of me. He's probably the executive probably, producer. So yeah. He probably he, like the studio probably gave him way too much power and just regretted it eternally. Eternally, yeah. Because uh, I don't know. It's just. I don't know if Apocalypse Now is worth it. I think I don't, a great I, film could have still been made had someone been there to be like, no, Francis. <laughs> I think overall, I mean, like, I think that 
other stories like this, you hear stories of like straight up like abuse, you know? Yeah. And this sounds just kind of like he was putting everyone through it. And he was just kind of like pushing people's boundaries too hard. So I'm like, overall, again, I say like, if there was abuse involved, like you think about like, I don't know, like what jumps out to me is like the story about like, you know, Tarantino almost letting Uma Thurman die in a car accident. Sure. And you're like, no, (laughs) it's simply not worth it. I think about, you know, I remember you sending me like David Fincher and Ben Affleck, like (laughs) shutting down production because they like, because Ben refused to wear a Yankees cap, which I'm like, one, I agree with him. Two, that's like, that's hilarious. Like, that's so funny because ultimately no one was hurt. Everyone was just being fucking stupid at the end of the day. And it's goddamn hilarious to me. But like, I think about the Tarantino thing where I'm just like, no, like that, like, I don't, I love Kill Bill. It was, it's not worth it to let, was it Kill Bill or was it Pulp Fiction when that happened? It was Kill Bill volume two. I love Kill Bill so much. Not worth losing Uma Thurman's life. Was it worth it? I don't know. I, I don't, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I like, Who are we to fucking say? I enjoyed the movie. I think it's fascinating how hard it was to make the movie. I think I think it only adds to the intrigue of the piece is that it was almost impossible to make the movie. It was in production hell. I think that makes it so interesting. I do think that the tables would be turned if you personally knew Francis Ford Coppola. Like if you went to college with Francis Ford Coppola and it was just like some shithead that you knew that yeah. is suddenly now a abu- But that's the thing. Is that like, what is stopping us from giving it that approach? Like, yeah, Francis Ford Coppola made The Godfather. Fuck you, you, you big uh, uh, oaf. Like it's true. It's pure arrogance. But at least, at least people are like, yeah, that fucking sucked. Like, why did he do that to us? I don't know. I think about like I think about the reason that literally the reason I stopped doing producing work, which was what I majored in in college, was because making my thesis, I was like, none of this is worth it, you know. And like nothing really bad happened. We were just in the desert for two weekends, and people were throwing tantrums and stuff. And I was like, I was like, this is not worth it. It's none of this is worth it. What are we going to get out of this, you know? And I feel like that maybe isn't a good energy to enter a set with. Yeah. But maybe it is. Your producer sitting there being like, I don't want anyone to get hurt. I don't want anyone to get in trouble because it's not fucking worth it. None of this is worth it. None of, none of this is worth it. Art is incredible. Art is beautiful. Art is fascinating. I love art. I was an art history minor. I was a film major. I love art. I love visual art so much. Nothing is worth people like getting in trouble, people getting hurt, people being, you know, people being emotionally abused. Like nothing is fucking worth it. It's just not. Would I not have Kong Skull Island if Apocalypse Now was never made? Yes. And that's, it is the hottest version of Tom Hiddleston, but it's fine. Oh my fucking God. Okay, so because of Kong Skull Island, the production history of Apocalypse Now was worth it. Oh no, I'm saying I would be fine without it. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) What are you saying? (laughs) You dummy. How dare you? (laughs) You love Kong Skull Island. I love Kong Skull Island so much. If you if you were listening to this podcast right now and you are hearing me talk about Kong Skull Island, one of my favorite movies of the tens, literally text me. I will Venmo you to rent it on YouTube. (laughs) Don't fucking rent it through Amazon, you scab. I will Venmo you to rent it. 
which funnily enough, I brought up Cannibal Holocaust earlier in the episode. There is a crazy Cannibal Holocaust reference in Kong Skull Island. Stop, uh, what? The uh, spider tree limb going through the guy's oh, that's uh, cool. throat that's cool. and his in his booty. Yeah. Uh, that's a very notorious shot in Cannibal Holocaust. Oh. It's, like, it's a deep pull. It's a good pull. Uh, it's fucked. Demented. Jordan Bill Roberts uh, does. I, I think he's a great director. I know. I've heard he's a bad person. Um, but I love, I love Kings of Summer. That movie fucking slaps. And so does Kong's Island. I want to talk about Apocalypse Now. Okay. And <laughs> we don't have to talk I about w- Kong's <laughs> Island available to stream on VMT now. <laughs> I, I want to present you with a galaxy brain double feature. Hit idea me. Hit me. That I came up with. And it, it came to me when I, I, this is the first time I've seen Apocalypse Now since I was a kid. I say this with every single fucking movie that we do on this podcast. Uh, but these are just not movies that I revisit Right, it's Child's Play, much. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, I, I wanted to watch, uh, there are giant check marks when I was getting into movies and just like, there's nothing about Apocalypse Now that screams, oh yeah, let's pop this in on a July. You know? <laughs> <laughs> let's put this in the old player. Um, but I remember seeing it the first time and being like, oh, okay, that was whatever it didn't help that i had seen full metal jacket first and okay. i loved full metal jacket as so you can much. imagine i've also not seen that <laughs> it's on the list it's on the list again um, i love more movies and so here we are 10 years later and i had completely forgotten that apocalypse now is like liquid cinema like it is completely defined by crossfades and careful edits and like the first two thirds are very editing and spectacle dominated and then you get into that final third and all of the movement in the movie is dictated by space and time martin Mm -hmm. sheen is on this hell-bent pursuit to dominate uh this figure that he has hyped up for himself that he wants to both be subservient to, but dominate. Yeah. Uh, he wants to find the ultimate meaning in life in someone else. And to do that, he's going on a massive road trip through ebbs and flows of meeting different freaks and going to different locales, all in the same watery, swampy area. Aya. Yes, Kevin. I kept thinking about the beach bum. I kept thinking, wow, the beach bum is Apocalypse Now, but Kurtz is God herself. It is a dark descent into the absolute depravity of humanity. And all the while, going through the ebbs and flows of scenes just bleeding into one another. And did he change? Did he really change? Does Martin Sheen change at the end of Apocalypse Now? Or is he still just a crazed vet in like locked inside a Saigon hotel room. What is Matthew McConaughey in the beach bum, but the same exact person from the first scene to the very last scene in that boat washed away from a burning yacht. Where's he going? We don't know. It just cuts the credits. And guess what? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't Uh, matter. He exists in that eternal moment, liquid cinema, beach bum and apocalypse. Now, I think they're the same movie. I think the beauty of all films about men that are like this um, is that they are all the Odyssey. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It, we can all bring it back to Homer. Yeah. I'm going to bring it back. Sorry. Like, God bless the beach found that movie slaps. Do these men change? No, they do not. The experience doesn't change them. 
Like that's no. a go- the go- the, that's like the gorgeous little cherry on top of the Odyssey. Is that through all of this, Odysseus has not changed. None of this has seemingly, seemingly none of this has affected him. And I think that's the interesting thing about Apocalypse Now is that I do think he is simply still the same person. All that he's seen, everything that he's seen, it only drives him further into being the person he was at the beginning. The beach bum, he's, that's, and that's like the point of the beach bum is that he is the same person through all of this. He, it's just that he, I think the beach bum is a little bit more advanced than Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I mean, I agree, but... (laughs) I think it's about him processing grief, though, and, like, his emotions. Yeah. Whereas, I think in in a similar way, though, uh, Martin Sheen's riverboat ride down uh, through Vietnam uh, is him basically trying to process not grief, but just his years spent forced in this land. Uh, that, that they were never meant to be in. And that moment when, like you mentioned, when they're like, who's in charge here? And they're like, we don't fucking know. Is him remembering why he left? Like, why he can't do this anymore? Yeah. And I think there's also, I mean, the reason I think why I bring up the beach bum is that there's a wistful element in Apocalypse Now to me. Where I think about Robert Duvall um, saying, uh, what's the fucking line? Uh, Robert Duvall says, someday this war is going to end. Oh, I he, love that part. And he kind of just like, he puckers his lips a little and kind of like drops his arms and you realize, oh no, he doesn't want it to end. He's happy here. <laughs> like he enjoys this. Uh, it Like the only thing missing from that line is someday this war is going to end, dot, dot, dot. So enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah. Too bad this war will end one day. Yeah, and it is soul-draining. It is bone-chilling. And I think that same sentiment comes through in the USO show, where uh, all of the uh, the, the GIs oh are basically God. becoming Dawn of the Dead-style zombies uh, upon yeah. these three Playboy Playmates. And the thing is that, like, yeah, they're in hell, but this is the closest they've ever been to a Playmate. Fuck yeah. yeah, we'll do this all the time. And then after that, you get to the bridge sequence, which this bridge sequence, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, with uh, It ends with the guy getting woken up and firing a mortar into the jungle for that one uh, Vietnamese soldier that's uh, screaming. Oh, I kind of remember. There's like carnival music almost kind of playing and there's like string lights going across it. It's a very yes. dreamy sequence. Yes, yes. That, I think, is my favorite scene in the entire movie. Because that's also when you have Lance with the puppy in his vest. Oh, that part's uh, so cute. Running across the, the battlefield. And that scene, too, you're going through the trenches, and you see, like, everyone's just, like, vibing. Like, They're <laughs> simply vibing. Everyone's just kind of, like, you see a bunch of, uh, like, a, a small crew of black GIs just kind of, like, listening to, like, some Jimi Hendrix on their radio uh, you have another GI who's just firing wildly into the jungle. And then you have like the most uh, spiritually affecting one, uh, Roach, who is like just he's, he's like that fucking uh, what we do in the shadows vampire. Uh, the really old one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they wake him up like, no, Roach, Roach. And he just comes up. He's so fucking high on acid. And then he just picks up this this missile launcher. And they go, hey, do you want a flare? Do you want to see what's out there? And he goes, no. no. 
he's real close. It's just like it, it feels like a nightmare. It, yeah. it, 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 nothing feels right. It's like pure Lynch almost. You're just running wow. into co- like cabals of people that just are either dying or enjoying dying or don't know that other people are dying. And it's the exact mania and confusion and like just gut churning shit that I want in an anti-war movie. It's not even like an anti-war movie. It's what I want in all my movies. I want, if all my movies can make my guts feel this way, it's this bridge scene. This bridge scene is unreal. But at the same time, it's unreal because I think there's like a wistfulness to it that makes Vietnam feel like a, like a chaotic good. In a, in a way, for a lot of Americans, like this is their Sodom and Gomorrah. True, they got to be away from the bullshit in America. <laughs> the, the, I mean, like the grind at home. I suppose if you're just posted up in the the fucking jungle, you're not worrying about like rent and you know d- dinner and groceries for the week and going to your soul sucking job. You're just chilling in the, the desert. <laughs> Maybe you'll see a playmate. Beach bum. Beach bum. Beach bum. You're describing the beach bum. Beach bum. Um, so that's my, that's my uh, stupid uh, knucklehead uh, double feature pairing. No, I think it's good. No, oh, thank you. I think it would be fun. <laughs> I think it'd be a really weird vibe switch. Like you watch all of Apocalypse Now and you're just like at the end like, <gasps> okay. And then it's like, <laughs> and now we cruise down through the keys with Matthew McConaughey and Jimmy Buffett. Aya, uh, does uh, Apocalypse Now make you want to watch every film Francis Ford Coppola has ever made? No. <laughs> <laughs> Por que no? Well... I've watched my first two Francis Ford Coppola movies in the last, like, two weeks. <laughs> Apocalypse Now and... 1994's. Was it four? Yeah. Uh, but... Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was the first... Okay, actually, technically, the first Francis Ford Coppola film I ever saw was Captain EO at Disneyland. Uh, um, yeah, fair. Yes. Followed closely by... Bra- Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Jesus. Have you All have right. you seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, Kev? I have not seen Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's on my blind spots list. It kind of is. In a way, I feel you may be missing out. <laughs> okay. Do you see any of uh, Mr. Coppola's uh, essential trademarks in Bram Stoker's Dracula? Do you see any comparisons between these two films almost 20 years apart? It just feels insane to even consider that I have to compare them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I should not be breathing the words Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now and Bram Stoker's Dracula in the same sentence. But here I am. Um, I did. I think that they're both horrors, as we've discussed, how they are horror movie, how Apocalypse Now functions very well as a horror movie. Um, I can see his horror techniques, which is interesting that I've seen his, like, horror movies, you know? Like, I have not seen The Godfather, but I've seen the two movies that he made that were intended to spook you. Um, yeah, I can see his horror techniques. There's a lot of like very primal. They're both very primal. I don't know how else to explain. It. I mean, Francis, I mean, that movie is about, you know, the transition between being a vampire and being a human. So there's a lot well, of like the- very intense transition sequences. It's very, as I said, primal. It's very physical. There's a lot of very grotesque 
body horror in that movie, which, you know, is implied in this one. And at the end, it wraps up with friggin' heads everywhere. <laughs> heads all over the place. Heads abound in Apostles <laughs> Now. Um, so yeah, I do see, I can see how, you know, I can see the way that his mise-en-scene in terms of uh, of the horror, the horror aesthetic, even though they're completely different, he did a really good job um, of making that movie spooky. I like, I like, I don't, I don't know, man. That movie really left me with more questions than answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that was the larger consensus on Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> it's like really fun. I, again, I like like you should watch it. Like maybe come I like will. come like October, pop that shit on. Winona is a a dream in that movie. Um, I don't love Gary. Oh, who is in that movie? Oh, did you watch Girls? The TV show? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. No, he he's from more than Girls. He was in. Um. That Melissa McCarthy, please forgive me. Can you ever forgive me? Can you ever me? forgive me movie? Richard oh, E. Grant. Uh, Richard Rich, E. Grant is in go. Dracula. He's so good. Um, I don't love Gary. Gary Oldman's fine. Um, but it's all about, you know, the worst performance. In <laughs> <laughs> Keanu Reeves in that movie. But no, I think I definitely, re- I recommend to the audience Dracula. <laughs> There we go. Bram Stoker's Dracula and Kong Skull Island. Dracula's a camp. It's like, it's kind of, it's very camp. I like that it's very camp. I, I think he went like really over the top with that one. I think it's really fun. I'm picking up on your vibe that Apocalypse Now. Hit me. Heralded is one of the greatest films of all time. One of the mm-hmm. greatest cinematic achievements. Uh, a true barn burner. A it's real. Beautiful. Boom. Bang. Cinema. cinema. Movie. Cinema. Uh, to, to you. Yeah. It's like a 7 out of 10. That's good. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> um, am I right? Am I wrong? Am I off base? I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. I said it I, I, It came out. I watched it the night that the Taylor Swift's new album came out, which is I turned off Taylor Swift's new album to watch this movie. And I said, you know what? I'm glad I did. Wow. For me, that's what huge. It, what does that say about folklore, though? Uh, no, folklore slaps. Top to bottom. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um... Folklore is fun. I, 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 my friends were like, how can you turn it off right now? Uh, you know, when it came out at 9 p.m. And I said, no, no, because the perfect time to listen to folklore is when I'm doing kitten time, when I sit on the floor of my bathroom in the dark and listen to folklore and just get my cat ready for bed. <laughs> <laughs> and just cry and think about, you know, my fucking fifth grade boyfriend. <laughs> um no i liked it a lot i thought again like i thought it was really great i thought it was beautiful i really would like to watch it in a theater that's the kind of movie that watching it at home really detracts from its quality because it's so beautiful and there's so many distractions i could definitely yeah i definitely feel like a a foolish fool for not going to the 4k restoration that came out last summer right like Ugh. In IMAX? That sounds amazing. Uh, even like this movie, even just like, I feel like I talk about the Vista so much, but I think I'm just so depressed that I haven't been to a movie theater in months. Um, yeah. I think that like, even just like a an afternoon screening at the Vista sounds amazing. You know, like the crackling of the, of the film reel. That just sounds, I could, I'm going to make myself cry. <laughs> oh my God. The most hallmark ass description of a movie theater 
the like smell I, of the popcorn. I'm picturing it. You know, I'm eating that like kind of, I feel like the popcorn at the Vista is kind of gross. <laughs> it's grody. You even, get the sour punch draws. like a 4 p.m. You know what I love is like a summer Sunday. No- I'm going to cry thinking about what there's A summer 4 p.m. Sunday afternoon screening of a film. My parents and I one time like, we were just driving around trying to figure out what to do. And we saw that uh, 2001 was playing at the Arclight Hollywood. And we Hot. just like drove, right? We just drove down and went to go see 2001 A Space. And it, it wasn't sold out, but there were people there. My dad put on his socks with his flip-flops because it's freezing in the Arclight. It's, I just like got some freaking sour punch straws and popcorn. And I had a, I had a wonderful Sunday, you know, matinee with my parents. I'm literally going to cry. Because that sounds so nice right now. It's doing Apocalypse Now on a Sunday at like 3.30 p.m. with my parents at the Arclight Hollywood praying I don't run into anyone I went to college with. I would genuinely cut off my arm to be able to do that right now. (laughs) I would 127 hours myself if it meant... One, I would go see The Post at the Arclight again. Just (laughs) (laughs) The Post, a film I had to run, not walk out of because I was so tired. I was falling asleep and I had to get a Diet Coke and Sour Punch straws to keep myself awake. Jesus Christ. I'd do anything for that. Uh, What was the last movie you saw in theaters, Kev? Uh... Birds of Prey. <laughs> oh, but... <laughs> yeah. That was that the AMC. Uh, the sixteen in Burbank. Yeah. Oh my, that really sucks, dude. Honestly, quite empty. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's not the best note to go off of. No. But you know what? From now on, I'll just say, "Oh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre." Yeah, it was Texas yes, Chainsaw. Yes, you can. I'll you just can. say that. I can just get away with that. Uh. Do you see yourself Emma. rewatching Apocalypse Now for years to come? Oh, not for years to come. But I feel like if I, like, if it was in theaters, I'd want to go see it in theaters in like five years when I can go to a movie theater again. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm trying. I, I want to figure out because I feel like there's something in this movie that doesn't a hundred percent click for you. Does it hundred percent click for you? Why well, don't I? I <laughs> Turn it around. Now you have to be introspective, bitch. <laughs> it. I think the what I want to figure out is that for all of these years up until this rewatch, mm-hmm. I was very blasé on Apocalypse okay. Now, and then on this rewatch, I didn't. I I never remembered that the editing was so fluid, and I didn't remember that the way that characters address each other is often directly into the lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very like pre-Demi type shit. Uh, And also like 1985 come and see type shit. Uh, Very distressing, very much implicates you in these horrors and these actions. It forces you to be in this space and, and to partake in these terrors. That did not compute when I saw this film for the first time. And I just kind of was like, yeah, that's a war movie. And I'm, I guess I'm wanting to interrogate you to retrospectively figure out what didn't completely click for me because hearing you sounds a lot like how I was back then where I was like, yeah, it was a good movie. Sorry, I'm a child. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, I think it purely comes down to my attention span. Like genuinely, I, I was reading tweets about folklore while I was watching this movie. Like I, and that's part of why I like I'm dying to go see it in a theater so that I can yeah. fully be immersed and not be, you know, reading my friend's text about how Betty is gay. Like, I mean, it is, but like, you know, I, I want that full immersion. I want to be fully I don't want to be distracted. And I was tired. Like it was a Thursday night. I had been working till 9 PM. Like I had just driven to an overpriced taco spot in Burbank for dinner. Like, right. Oh. Kevin's making a face. Oh. <laughs> like it was not like the, the, it was not apocalypse now hours. I think if I watched it during real apocalypse now hours. And again, like the fact that I came away from it being like, Oh, that was really good. Like Kelsey did not like it. And the fact that I came Interesting. Away, yeah, she did not care for it. And the fact that I came away from it being like, oh, no, that was a great film. It's beautiful. I really enjoyed it. I just, I feel like it's not clicking simply because I wasn't paying attention for the entire time. I'll, I like, I I'll, honestly, like it was just like a, a th- we started what, at like 10 p.m. almost. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, because I was working. Like if I watched it on like a Saturday, I can see myself watching it with like my dad and loving it, you know, and being like, wow, that was really something. Especially that ending. Like, I loved the ending. I re- I was, I loved the ending so much. I loved when they finally met Kurtz. I was, a, I, I loved it. I really loved, um, I loved Martin Sheen's performance so, so much. I thought he was great. As I mentioned, I love Dennis Hopper as an actor. I don't support him. As a <laughs> I love Dennis Hopper whenever I see him in a movie. Because I just saw him in, like, the first two movies I've ever seen him in, like, last month. Um, great villain in Speed. Watching him get deep. At the end of Speed, he gets decapitated. It's so fucking dope. It's, it's so, so fucking hard. Dope. Like every time that ha- I forget it happens every time, and then you're like, "Oh shit!" His head just went clean off. And then the worst really? line ever. Mastery what did he say? Slice. What does Keanu say? He's like, "I lost his head." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! No, the worst line is when he's like. He's like, I'm smarter than you, Jack. Because that's like his dying words. He's like, I'm smarter than you, Jack. You're dumb. I'm smarter than you. He is beheaded. And Keanu says, but I'm taller. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the that's like the line at the at the at the climax of speed. That's his response to that. You can thank Josh Whedon for that one. Oh, thank you, Mr. Josh. (laughs) Thank you so much, Josh. Um. (laughs) Dory and I call him Josh Whedon because we don't respect him. That's um, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, anyways. Wow. Anyways, I, I seeing Dennis Hopper made me like almost like that, like dragged me back into paying attention because I was like, hell yeah. Also, the when when um, sweet Larry Fishburne dies is like one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. Re- his mother on the recording speaking and talking about what's going to happen when he comes back. And he's dying on the back of this, like on the back of this boat in the middle of a river. It's and no, and like what are they? Gonna, they're just gonna like throw his body over the side. It's so sad. Beautiful. Oddly enough, uh, one of the deleted scenes of the film, and one of the most like controversial scenes of the film, where it's like, why the fuck did you film <gasps> this? Apparently, uh, it's his burial sequence, oh. which they do at a French plantation Ooh. Uh, on the river. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and Are it's, we sure it's, about that, friend? <laughs> it's quite fraught. Uh, and it's like, okay, there's a lot of things you're introducing the film here at this point that we really don't need to be. It is included in the final cut for some reason. Oh, no. That's what was released in the IMAX theaters last summer. Um, 
but that's an odd one. I guess also to get back to to why it feels like I've been probing you uh, is that I'm always very curious when uh, conversations are had <laughs> about these all-time canon classics and we kind of walk away with like, yeah, that was great and not, this was a masterpiece. My life is fucking changed. Yeah. Like this shit was fucking magnificent, you know? I, I, I'm very curious in what colors the in-between reactions. That is very and, true. Because you so, think about, like, think that, what are, like, the great films that I've seen? I've seen Citizen Kane. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to Orson Welles, but literally, like, reading the Wikipedia page about Patty Hearst was, like, more interesting than all of Citizen Kane. Um, I speak that shit. I mean, she's dope. Uh, no, she's crazy. Um, when, do you want to hear the top five on the AFI 100? Yes, tell me. Uh, let me give you the top six. Let me, five let me look, because I need to see which ones I've actually seen. Yeah. Uh, so the top five go, number five, Singing in the Rain. Number four, yeah. for some reason, Raging Bull. Okay, I've not uh, seen I, it yet, so I can't judge. Here are the big three. Casablanca, The Godfather, Citizen Kane. Okay, Citizen Kane and Casablanca I fell asleep in, and I haven't seen The Godfather. Well, Casablanca fucking whips. That shit is incredible. No, I'm sure uh, it is. I was like, I had I had a sleep disorder in college, so I couldn't watch oh it. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a good excuse. I, um, <laughs> so I fell asleep like like literally moments into the film. <laughs> um, I have seen Gone with the Wind, and it rips. I really like Gone with the Wind. I do too. Gone I think it's films. like a really interesting, dangerous movie. So I guess what that ultimately says is that we're not super impressed with what is known as the great american films well uh, i feel like you get into this weird conversation there where it's like is it more quality based or is it historic influence and like what's the line you know yeah and then you know having to teeter between those two and then having to contend with the fact that like yeah i'm i mean I'm just watching a movie on HBO Max at 10 p.m. at night. <laughs> True. How do how do I feel watching this? I think on a second watch of Apocalypse Now, I do walk away from it a lot more fondly than you on your first watch. Yeah. Uh, mo- mostly because I think in the time since I've last watched it, what I want for movies, which is like more of a mood piece and something that makes me want to like sink in quicksand you love to Uh, you simply love to vibe i love to vibe and apocalypse now is a much vibier movie than i ever remembered no it is that's what i was really surprised by which is like how i mean i'm not like surprised movies are beautiful but i was just surprised by how like unreal the cinematography was holy shit insane insane um so I don't know. I think this is a, a, a I, I thought that this was going to be like a write off type of episode. It was like, oh, yeah, it's our Apocalypse Now episode. But I, looking at like the one of the, the grander scheme of like the films we've covered, this is one I think that's just going to like sit in the back of my head and like have a nice like squat and just stay there for a couple of decades <laughs> and just be nice. like, remember me? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to recommending it to people if they haven't seen it, you know, and like oh, my interesting. parents asked me about it and they were like, did you oh, did you like it? You know, this great American film. And I was like, yeah, I thought it was great. It's amazing. I love this film with all these emaciated, diarrhea-having, sweaty-ass motherfucking GIs. Love it. I love it so much. But, I mean, with all of these disheveled men, (gasps) who could possibly choose (gasps) a hottest of the flick? segue! 
Who could possibly be the hottest of the flick in a movie as sweaty as this? Genuinely, I don't know. <laughs> I have no answer. I have nothing cooked up for this. <laughs> I feel like if Lawrence Fishburne was not 14, oh, no. he was a little bit more like he looked like a child because I know how hot he becomes. So I'm like, okay, could good be save. Hot. Good save. No, I'm like I like I know he will be hotter, so I'm like, I'm looking at him being like you're a child, but I know you will be a very handsome adult one day. You got um, it in you, kid. I mean, I feel like the obvious answer is Martin Sheen. He did look very hot in this movie. An incredible actor. He's very right. handsome. He's so. Sc- I, I turned to Kelsey halfway through, and I was like, the performance he's giving is insane. Um, but yeah, the the moments where you can see, I, I think it's so fun to be able to see both his children in his face. It's fucking crazy. Um, they're like, cause he always looks like Emilio. Emilio always looks like him, and he always has Emilio's face. And then there's like a minute, like na- like one time out of ten, where he's got Charlie Sheen's face, and it's so chaotic. You don't know what to do. And it's in those moments where you're like, oh, that's why he's playing this part. He's about to snap. Any second he could snap, it's because he has fucking Charlie Sheen's face. <laughs> um, the hottest of the flick for me is going to be um, Tom Hiddleston in Coxclaw. <laughs> oh, my God. She need to cheat on all of these. <laughs> it was not a hot movie, Kevin. I guess. I guess. I mean, if I were to really choose someone, I would go with Chef. Oh, uh, Chef's I pretty think- hot. I think Chef is like the interest. Like there is no man that looks like Chef in the 2020s. No, Good Chef was Good only a, like a, a 1970s looking motherfucker who has that thick mustache, that thick facial hair, and is like kind of fit, but also farmer fit. Yeah, uh, looks like he can go ballistic at any second. Any second. But every other second, chills. Fuck. He's just cool like, guy. let's have mangoes and cream, baby. <laughs> um, if I was going to re- truly break the rules, I mean, obviously it's not Tom Hiddleston in Kongskull Island, except that it's totally Tom Hiddleston in Kongskull Island. Um, I would say it's Harrison Ford in that, yeah. uh, in that first se- or second scene. He looks a little, a little lanky for me. Good, a little lanky. This. He looks good. I feel like that's the most attractive I've seen Harrison Ford. I think I like him lankier. I don't think he uh, he's like fine in Star Wars. What else was he in that I just watched? Oh, he's hot as Indiana Jones. What am I talking about? Just kidding. Yeah, he's super hot. As he's Indiana so Jones. he's fuck? so hot. Uh, no, he, I, he's super hot in this movie though. He wears glasses. Ugh, and you just like gagging for him to be in the rest of the movie, and then he's not. <laughs> God, did you say gagging? Gagging. Okay. All right, folks. That's that it. was an episode of <laughs> I versus the Big Boys. <laughs> You can listen to us over on the Merry-Go-Round Patreon for the time being. Rate, we review, appreciate. and subscribe. <laughs> Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, we really appreciate everyone who's supporting the site. Um, we have some really cool stuff coming up this summer. Uh, let's just say Merry-Go-Round's uh, birthday coming up on <gasps> August 18th. Yay! It's going to be a pretty spicy one, Huge. a pretty fun one. Five years. Five years, baby. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, we love doing it. We love that and and really appreciate that you guys support us doing it. Uh, make sure to go to Dime in the Jukebox uh, every yeah. Friday night. Uh, jukebox is JQBX. It's a site where you link your Spotify and you go into a, a chat room where everyone can basically be the, their own jukebox and play music for everyone. Super dope environment. People love so it. You will definitely love it. Uh, we have cool pieces going up pretty much every day on Merry-Go-Round. We are churning out shit like fucking wild. Uh, I'm super proud of what we're doing. Uh, and 
I mean, we're doing the show weekly, baby. We, we listen to more Ivers the Big Boys. You already listened to all the episodes? Uh, listen to them again. You, I'm sure you've missed some Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, there's some little tidbits in there. We we, we want to come up with running jokes, uh, little little insider uh, sneaky sneaky mer- jokes. So we make merch. <laughs> oh my god! Send in viewer mail. <laughs> oh my god! Please, I want I want voicemails. I want to be able to answer on the air. <laughs> I'm sure we'll officially get some stuff to actually make this a real show in a bit. Cool. That'll be fun. I don't, I don't see why not. It'll be fun. Yeah, right? It seems like a fun thing to work on. Aya, do you have any final words for our listeners? No. Great. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. What a fucking finale. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Aya versus the Big Boys. <laughs> Don't be mad, don't be mad at me, no, 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 darling, I can stop it, even if I want it. Don't be mad, don't be mad at me, no, 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 I miss what you were saying, I was miles away. Don't be mad, don't be mad, now I got a choice. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys, boys. I was mad, I think about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys.